And I, and I like this one because I get to show you a little bit of uh, even what I do when I study. Um, what we go over tonight is one of those things that really changed a lot for me. Um, and I remember when I started really digging into the Bible, um, it was when I was like 19, 20 years old. I started spending more and more time in the Bible. And, and this was one thing that I learned how to do. And it literally changed everything. It helped me to really find out what do I believe? Why do I believe it? What are the passages of Scripture that I can go to, to 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 believe those things? And even when I was reading other stuff that I didn't understand, how do I actually go and figure out what these words and what these verses are actually teaching and what's going on? So I'm really excited about tonight. So we're doing uh, rule number six, and that is comparing Scripture with Scripture. So, and this is the rule. The Bible is of no private interpretation. All interpretations must be made by comparing Scripture with other Scripture. God's Word is unique. Um, there's a lot of people that when it comes to debating the Bible, they don't like this. Because, anyone know what the term is? If you use the Bible to prove the Bible, what is that called? Anyone know? Not circular Yeah, it is. Circular reasoning. Yep, circular reasoning. So whenever you get into debate class and things like that, um, that's something that is highly despised. They don't like you doing that. You're saying, well, I believe this because of that, because that says this is true. Well, you can't really do that. You have to have independently verified sources in order to come to the conclusion that you've come to, which we can do with the Bible. But the beautiful thing about the Bible is that as a Bible believer, it is completely okay to have circular reasoning. Tell me why. Think about it. Why is it okay to have circular reasoning when it comes to what you believe about the Bible? Because we already know that everything the Bible says is true. Exactly, because God wrote it. It's God's book, and God knows everything. So it's the only thing in the world that we can take what it says and use it to prove other parts of the Bible and what it says, because God wrote it. This is why I take such a hard stance on if there's one thing in the Bible that's wrong, then throw the whole thing out. But when it comes to people that you would talk to, they would be more like atheists or they're in different forms of religion or they're big into philosophy. It doesn't really work with them. And so that's where you have to really get into some other areas of reasoning in order to have dialogue with them. Uh, Paul had the same issue when he went to Athens, which I think we're going to actually get to this Sunday with Pastor Tom's message in the book of Acts. And for the most part, he wasn't very fruitful in Athens because they were so stuck on philosophy that they couldn't get past those certain things in order to believe what he was preaching about Jesus and about the Bible. So the Bible's of no private interpretation. This one's big. This means that you cannot believe what you believe just based on one verse. And that's another rule of Bible study that we're going to get at later. But you can't just take one verse in your Bible and then say, I believe uh, this particular doctrine or this particular truth because this one verse says it. No. If God wants you to believe something, he will repeat himself throughout the scriptures. And so you will take that verse and you'll compare what the Bible says over here, because it sounds very similar. They use similar words or whatever in order to build your system of doctrine through the words of God. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so we have to interpret scripture as scripture. So the two big verses for this one are 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You cannot privately interpret any part of the Bible. It must be exposed in public with all the other verses of the Bible. It's not privately interpreted. And then 1 Corinthians 2.13, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. God always does this. If He's teaching you something spiritually, He's going to compare it with something else spiritual. And the Spirit of God really does this. Jesus was a master at this. Um, next week, we're going to take a look at the creation factor and how Jesus used things from creation to prove biblical truths. 
And he did that because God created creation. And so they echo the truths of the Bible. And so you can go out in nature and you can understand things about God by looking at nature, understanding how things work. It's really fascinating. And so we'll talk about that next week. All right, so here's some important concepts that we have to cover before we really dive into some of the details. All right, so first of all, the Bible is God's book written for man. He inspired, and this is amazing, over 40 authors. He inspired over 40 authors from various cultures to write his words over a time span of 2,000 years. Most of them did not know each other or read each other's writings. And yet God compiled it all together seamlessly and without contradictions. This is one of the big reasons why I believe the Bible. Because when can you get 40 different authors to write within one year about the same events? I mean, just look what's going on right now in the political arena. What's happening with the president, or what's happening with COVID, or happening with Black Lives Matter, or happening with whatever. You can find 40 different authors, and they will contradict each other on different things, because their biases are put into those words. So here, God took 40 authors from 2,000 years, across 2,000 years, and Genesis agrees with Revelation. That's amazing. There are truths that are found only in Genesis until you get to Revelation. Like, wow, yeah, Genesis actually talks about that. Or like what we talked about last week, Joseph. Joseph is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. How can that be? There are thousands of years between Joseph and Jesus. And yet they line up perfectly. And this is why a lot of scholars, um, self-appointed scholars, self-described scholars, will say that the Bible simply can't be that way. God could not have written it. It's too good. (laughs) I mean, they will say that. And that's why people even say with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they say, scholars, they will say that it was not written independently, that these guys all went to a singular document to copy from one another to create their own epistles. And then, of course, does that document exist? Of course not. But there's no way. The odds are too great that you can have four different accounts that line up with almost the exact same detail. So they must have gotten their source from somewhere. So we're just going to call this document Q. Well, where is Q? Well, it doesn't exist. We, I mean, we don't have it. We don't have proof. But they must have done it. And then they believe that. So they have more faith in believing that document Q exists rather than the pages that sit before them. And that's part of their problem. They're unbelievers. They're not believing that God can actually do it. And that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. All right, next point. God inspired the New Testament writers and speakers, Jesus, Peter, and Paul, to often quote the Old Testament as support for New Testament doctrine. So even Jesus, Peter, and Paul, and others, they use Old Testament scriptures to prove New Testament doctrine. They applied this key of Bible study comparing scripture with other scriptures. All right, let's look this up. So someone take Matthew 4, 4, and 6. All right, you can get that one, Gavin. 4, 4, and 6, and do 10 as well. You can do all three of those. Romans 1, 17, Sam, you got that one. Um, and then go ahead, Alana, you can take uh, the next one. Romans 15, 9, and then 1 Peter 1, 16. Who wants that one? All right. Emily, you can take that one. 1 Peter 1.16. So you'll find all over the New Testament, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and others, even John does a great job at this when he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of John, that they will actually use or quote Old Testament passages of Scripture to support what they're saying in the New Testament. All right, so listen to these verses, Matthew 4, 4, 6, and 10. This is the temptation of Jesus, by the way, given a little context. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thou thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against stone. And ten. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get, the, get thee hence, saying, For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and only him shalt thou serve. Okay, so in that context, the devil shows up to tempt Jesus. He's 40 days in the wilderness, and he's hitting him when he's weak. And Jesus could have done anything. In fact, Jesus called the Word of God, right? Big J is cap G. All right, so in that context, Jesus could have spoken anything, and it would have been the Word of God, right? So he could have said anything, but what did he do? He went back to Deuteronomy, and he quoted passages out of Deuteronomy. To fight against the devil. That amazes me. I undervalue scripture memorization. When I read that passage, every time I read it, it shows me how much I undervalue memorizing scripture. Jesus memorized scripture. He didn't come up with his own reasoning. He didn't come up with his own set of words. And he could have because he is the word of God. He chose to use the Old Testament scriptures. That's huge. That's huge. That's major. That's very important. All right, Romans 1.17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, so Paul's using a passage from the Old Testament to prove what he's proving as far as salvation in the book of Romans. Romans 15.9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. Okay, same thing. It is written. It is written. Anytime where you see it is written, they're quoting an Old Testament passage of Scripture. And then 1 Peter 1.16. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Okay, and, and God said that back in Leviticus. And here Peter's using it to prove his point in the book of 1 Peter. So I love it. I love that. All right, so God inspired them. They used the Old Testament. They applied this, this factor of Bible study. All right, third point here. God always establishes a matter with two or three witnesses. He always does this with two or three witnesses. Can't remember if I have this one up here or not. Let me see. Yep, I do. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 13.1, it says, This is the third time I am coming to you, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Paul said this because he needed to have two or three. If you only had one witness, what could you do? You could lie. But if you have two or three independent witnesses, then it establishes the matter. This is a legal term. This is a legal practice that is, is very alive and well in our court system today. You can't have someone that goes and accuses someone else of murder and then they go to jail. No matter how much some people more on the liberal side would like to do that. They would like to imprison people just because they don't like them. That's not justice. That's not democracy. That's not how things work. That's not how the Bible operates. Our government system was built upon the foundation of the scriptures. And the scriptures establish things independently by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth. It doesn't matter what it is. You can't have one person accuse someone else and then all of a sudden they're going to be punished for it. It doesn't work that way. It says, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. You have to have independent people seeing the same thing in order to prove that that's actually true. And then Numbers 35.30, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. And they would often, in the Old Testament law, which I thought this would be, this is a wise move. But if a person were to stand up and they were to be part of those two or three, if they were convicted and they were guilty, found guilty, those two or three would be the first ones to throw stones at them, to kill them. Okay, fine. You're going to stand up and be a witness? Okay, then you need to pull the hammer. And you're going to end their life. 
So this wasn't a light issue. And so God feels this way about his word. Two or three. And this is why anytime I say I believe something about the Bible, I better have two or three verses that back up what I'm about to say. I'm not just going to say it because it sounds nice or it seems to fit. I want to believe what I believe, and I'm going to back it up with two or three other verses because how do I know it's true? God will establish it by two or three other witnesses, two or three other verses. So that's huge. All right, let's go to Isaiah 28. This one's a cool one. Isaiah 28. <clears throat> Isaiah 28. All right, Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10. So we see how God, according to this verse, we'll see how He structures His doctrine. And when you really think about it, what we're about to read is exactly how we learn things. Ever since we've been little children, this is how we learn things. All right, verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? So knowledge and doctrine are equated as the same. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. So here he automatically um, correlates this to when a child is still um, consuming milk from the mother. So who's going to teach knowledge? Who's going to teach doctrine? A child that's no longer drinking milk. So a child has the ability to actually consume real food, and they can digest it properly. This is why brand new believers, oftentimes, they don't understand certain things about the Bible, and that's completely fine. They need someone to feed them milk so they can properly start to understand some of the basics, and then they can grow and understand in their knowledge and understanding. This is, this is normal. This is what we do in discipleship. That's how it's supposed to work. You can't expect a, a, a baby that's like six months old to be eating steak. It just doesn't work out that way. God doesn't give them the ability to have teeth to even start to chew stuff like that until later on. And so you can learn some of that from nature, which is really cool. Verse 10. So here's how God works. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So God always works this way. I'm not teaching my kids the ins and outs of economics in the United States of America without them understanding how we do things in our home. Right? The things that we do in our home should begin to teach them some of those basic principles. Before you learn algebra, what do you have to learn? Basic math. Even more basic than 8th grade math. <laughs> you have to learn addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. You don't just say, all right, uh, you're five, right? Okay, well, let's go ahead and do long division. Or let's start to, to cover the, some of these issues of calculus. Okay, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. We don't do that. Neither does God. God does not expect a believer who's brand new to sit down and understand and detail out the deep things of God. Because if you don't understand the basics about salvation, how can you understand some of the deeper things of why God saved people? If you can't understand why God saved you or how that even would work out in your own life, then how in the world can you understand God's overall plan of salvation for the whole world? It's not going to work out. So this is a great verse for that. All right, so this leads us to our last point here for important concepts. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, not our personal opinions. You must learn how to exercise yourself with how to use cross-referencing. Treasury Scripture Knowledge is a great tool for that. And a concordance that gives every Bible reference where each word in the Bible is used. 
There are good online resources to use as blb.org or blueletterbible.org or apps that you can install on your computer. Bible Analyzer, which is one I use. Olive Tree, I use that one too. Sword Searcher, uh, Jay uses that one. Um, your tablet or smartphone, you've got Blue Letter Bible. I also use Olive Tree for my phone and on my tablet as well. I've got a couple different ones that I use. I'm going to show you guys those ones in a little bit. So there are many different things that are free at your disposal. There is no reason why you guys at your age cannot start doing some of this stuff. I mean, it is easier now than ever. In our Laodicean church period, where a lot of people don't want to serve God properly, it is, it is the easiest time in the world to clearly understand the Bible. Clearly. You have tools that they never had. And sadly, Christians from 1900 and before are way more efficient at the work of the Lord than we are. Which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's one of those things that we are going to be held accountable for. We have technological advancements that should not be used for sin, but rather can be sanctified and used for holiness in order to understand the scriptures. This doesn't have to be a device that trips you up by getting into pornography or you know, sending things inappropriate or, or whatever else. It doesn't have to be that or as a gossip fest. This can actually be a tool to help you walk with God, but sadly most people don't want to use it that way. But I'm going to show you how to do it if you want to make that decision. All right, so let's look at an example. Let's look at an example. Job 41. We're going to take a look at an example, and we're going to look at the Leviathan. This one's really cool. So I'll show you what it means to compare Scripture to Scripture. This one's a very easy one to understand, uh, and we're going to take a look at this together. So go to Job 41. Job 41. All right, so we're not going to read the entire chapter of Job 41. But in Job 41, God is speaking, and he's trying to prove a point to Job. And here, what you find out, if you spend any amount of time in our church, um, at some point you'll hear Pastor Tom go through the Leviathan in Job 41, and it is absolutely fascinating. But Job 41 is not just about some sort of a sea monster. It isn't. Job 41 talks about Leviathan. It talks about how dangerous he is. It talks about how, how crazy it would be for you to even, even battle with him. He's someone that you don't even want to go up against. And so here, he's making a point. So he says in verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? So can you catch him like a fisherman would? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook through his no into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? Will thou play with him as with a bird? Or will thou bind him for thy maidens? And then look at verse 8. Lay thy hand upon him, remember the battle, and do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? No, none is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? And he continues. Jump down to verse, um, verse 13. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Or who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride. Shut up together as with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings a light that shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. And then go down to uh, verse 21. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. And then jump down to uh, verse 33. Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children. 
children of pride. So you can even say the way this is worded is describing this, this sea monster, this beast that is like a fire-breathing dragon. It talks about how the, his flames that come out, his eyelids are like the eyes of the morning. He's got scales that are joined together. He's got his, uh, where it talks about the flakes of his flesh are joined together. Those are his scales. And it talks about at the very end that he beholds all high things and he is a king over all the children of pride. How can a sea monster be a king over the children, humans of pride? It doesn't make any sense at all. So God is describing a legitimate sea creature, I do believe. Now, in a lot of translations of the Bible, they will have little footnotes there that will say that it's some sort of a whirlpool or a hippopotamus. That's not possible. It takes more faith to believe that what he's talking about here is a whirlpool or a hippopotamus than it does an actual live sea creature, beast, fire-breathing dragon that's in the waters. So, this is amazing. And so, he puts this in here and it's like, wow. Well, this is talking about the devil. And this is not something that I made up. This is something that the Bible actually teaches. But you can't find it out until you compare Scripture with Scripture. So let me show you a few passages that show you that this is actually talking about the devil. Alright, so we got Psalm 74. Psalm 74. Psalm 74, verse 13 and 14. I want you guys all to turn to it. Psalm 74, 13 and 14. And I found these, these cross-references by searching for Leviathan. Alright, Psalm 74. <clears throat> I keep flipping back and forth over it. I hate it when I do that. I flip and then I go back. I flip and I go back. Alright, Psalm 74. Somebody read 13 and 14. Someone who hasn't read yet. Go ahead. Thou didst divide the sea by the stream. By thy strength, thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Okay, so there it is in 14, Leviathan. But then it gives you a little bit more. You find out that he has multiple heads. And here it says God breaks the heads of Leviathan. So it's not just a sea creature that has a single head, as it describes in Job 41, but there's actually multiple heads. So Leviathan is a dragon, because it says the heads of the dragons in the water, verse 13. And he has heads of Leviathan in verse 14. Leviathan is a dragon with multiple heads. So those are blanks there, dragon with multiple heads. So he is a terrifying sea creature that dwells in the deep, that strikes fear into every man. According to this verse, we find out Leviathan is a dragon that has multiple heads. Go to Isaiah 27. Isaiah chapter 27. And then somebody read verse 1. We had someone over here. All right, go ahead, Kendall. Verse 1. Yep. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Okay, so what are some synonyms we find in here of Leviathan? Piercing serpent. Serpent? What kind of serpent? Piercing. No. Nope. Crooked. Crooked. <laughs> yeah. Piercing serpent. Yeah, actually, you were right. Sorry. My bad. Piercing serpent. Crooked serpent. And then what else is he called in here? Dragon. dragon. Okay. So Leviathan is a piercing and crooked serpent and a dragon. So we're finding multiple things now. Not only is he a dragon, but he is a serpent. He has multiple heads. 
and he's in the sea, in the sea, in the waters, which is very similar to what he even talks about in Job 41. All right, let's go to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. And then someone read verse 3 and verse 9. Verse 3 and verse 9. Go ahead, Alana. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. Do you want me to read 3 through 9? No, and just verse 9 as well. Um, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, so once you compare Job 41, Psalm 74, Isaiah 27, and Revelation 12, you find out that this multi-headed, crooked serpent called a dragon, Leviathan, is the devil. So once you compare all those together, you find out Leviathan is the devil. And that's the only other time that a, a creature like this is even mentioned in Scripture. And that's how we can be confident that that is the devil. So now, once you take that information and you go back to Job 41, you can actually study out the characteristics of what the devil is. It's quite amazing. Go back to Job 41 real quick. Because now that we know that, now that the Bible has proven that the Leviathan is the devil, now there's a few things in here that completely change. Job 41. All right, take a look at this. <clears throat> Verse 3. Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him as a, for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? You know where that happens? Verse 3. In Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, the devil approaches God and makes soft supplications unto God. He doesn't speak angrily. He doesn't speak with any fierceness in his... In his he's like, oh, come on, God. You know that Job only does this because of this. He doesn't speak to God that way, and that's why God brought it up here. Is he going to make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? He does with God. You can find that in the book of Job. It's pretty fascinating. Or you find out, will he make a covenant with thee? Do you know that the devil actually did that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9? We just read it tonight, where Jesus says, it is written. He was making a covenant with Jesus. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. He actually did that with Jesus. And here God put it back in Job 41 before it even occurred. And then you find out in verse 5, Will thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? In Revelation 20, verse 2, the devil is bound with a chain and locked in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So we actually, that actually does happen. Or what about down in verse 15? His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. He is so arrogant and prideful that he actually thinks that he can usurp God's plan. Because he's an arrogant. He's arrogant. His scales are his pride. They're shut up. There's nothing in come between them. Or what about in, um, in verse 22? In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. He loves it when you are sad. He loves it. When you have sorrow, it makes him incredibly happy. Especially if you're a child of God. And then 34. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of of pride. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44. 
He's the father of lies. He's the murderer from the beginning. So here it's talking about the devil. So once you start going through that, you're like, oh my word. And the only way you can come to that conclusion is if you take that word Leviathan and you search for Leviathan, you'll find Psalm 74, Isaiah 27. And then when you look up the word serpent and dragon, you'll find Revelation 12. And as you compare scripture with scripture, you find out that it's talking about the devil. That's pretty cool. I love that. I absolutely love that. Okay, so now let's talk about how to actually use this. So um, I have an example there of the rapture and the second coming, which you guys can take a look at that later. That's another example of how when you compare Scripture with Scripture, that the rapture and the second coming are not the same events. Um, so when you start to take a look at that, you can look at that on your own time. But I want to look up some, uh, some stuff that you guys even want to look up. So I'm going to switch over here real quick. And I really wanted to do it with my tablet, but I forgot my tablet. In my house, so we're just gonna do the best we can with what we got. All right, so give it a minute for the Apple TV to get started. This is where we need the Jeopardy music. <laughs> Which we could easily do. Come on, let's try it again. Yes. What was the last? Enemy. Bam. Wait, was I right? The last blank? Was it enemy? Yeah. Adversary. Oh, same thing. Adversary. It is a synonym. You are correct. You're absolutely correct. I know I'm right. Can just think of Well, it, yeah. I was like, what? There we go. All right. I do. Okay. All right. So if you do not have these tools on your phone and you have the ability to download them now, I would recommend that you do that. If you already have them, maybe you can pull them up and you can start to use them a little bit. Um, but I would recommend doing it. So that way you can even step through some of these things together with me as I do them so you learn how to use it. So if you don't have it, take a minute and do that. Um, this Bible study, this is Olive Tree. Uh, that's one that I use, but my, my main one is BLB, Blue Letter Bible. So that's what the icon looks like. Um, this is an amazing, amazing tool um, that I use a lot for when it comes to searching the Bible, using uh, treasury of scripture knowledge, doing some cross-referencing. Um, the Bible study app does it as well, but in order to get a, a better version of, uh, like if you want to get the treasury scripture knowledge, you actually have to buy it. And it only costs like five bucks, so it's totally worth the investment. But, um, but that's another one that you could use as well. Um, so Blue Letter Bible is the one that I'm going to show you guys. All right, so once you get that downloaded, you can open it up. And there are several different things that you can do here from the get-go. So um, I use the black theme. Can you, everyone see that okay? Is that all right? All right. I like the black theme myself. All right. So, so this is very, very easy as far as the navigation concerns. So once you tap on the book at the top, then you can get the full list of the books of the Bible. So you can go Old Testament, New Testament. So it's very easy to navigate, similar to any other Bible app that you would have. But, um, but let's go ahead and look at something real quick. So um, let's go to, um, let's see here. Uh, Job 41, since we just talked about it. So I'm going to go to Job 41, and I'll show you some of the cross-references and stuff. Okay, 
So once you have that, at the very top you have verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Now, as soon as I have that up there, and I want to say, okay, I want to cross-reference verse 1. I want to see if there are any other places in the Bible that talks about something similar. So that's what we're talking about when we say cross-referencing. Are there any other places in the Bible that talk about the subject matter or the words that are very, very similar? So you can find out what's going on. So as soon as I tap on verse 1, I get this menu. And so you have interlinear concordance, which goes back to the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, translation comparisons, so you can compare two different translations of the Bible. But then cross-references, TSK, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, cross-references. That is the one that I use the most. Outside of the cross-references, I will use the dictionary section um, because there are some pretty good Bible dictionaries that will give you some historical information about that particular verse or that book or whatever. But the cross-references, TSK, is where you want to go. So I'll hit that real quick. And as you can see, it starts to break it down automatically. So it talks about, Canst thou draw out Leviathan, and Leviathan is, is in red, with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down. So there's two different places in the scripture where they start to compile different verses, and they list them all here. And then they have this here, drown us or let us down, which may or may not be what that's talking about. Um, but anyway, right here, Leviathan is where I go. And right now, you can start to see... Job 3.8, let them curse that curse, let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their mourning. Like I look at that and I'm like, what does that have to do with Leviathan? Does it have anything to do with Leviathan? You might have to check the context, but it doesn't look like it. It doesn't I, there's nothing that I can see. I mean it's talking about a sea creature that you would catch with a hook from a line. So what does Job 3.8 have to do with it? Alright? So, nothing. So, there are certain things where I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And then I just move on. Because the person that compiled these verses wasn't God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? God did not compile these, and so I'm not going to take it as I would the rest of the scripture. But here you can start to see, I got Psalm 74, 14. That was one of our cross-references. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat of the people inhabiting the wilderness. And so if I want to go to that verse, then I could. I could tap on it, and then it says you want to look at it in Bible view or quick view. Now, if you do it in Bible view, it's going to take you there, and you're going to lose your cross-references. So I'll usually do the quick view, and then it will show me right there, and I can read this particular chapter and find out what's going on in here. And I see, oh wait, it's not just verse 14, it's also verse 13. Thou didst divide the sea by strength, thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan. So now I include 13 and 14 as part of my cross-references for that particular verse. Okay, So then I'm going to go back. And I want to see the next one. Psalm 104, verse 26, which we didn't use that one, but this is another great cross-reference. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. Talking about the sea when you look at the context of Psalm 104. Isaiah 27, 1, that was another one of our cross-references. In that day the Lord with his sword and great strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So right there, I start to see my cross-references. And right out of the gate, we've got three out of the four that I used. Just in looking at Leviathan. And then the other one that I would use is look up serpent and dragon. So if I wanted to look that up, very easy. So you can do a word search. So you tap on the magnifying glass. And I want to look up dragon. I want to look up serpent. Is it ENT or ENT? I always get them wrong. ENT. My bad. Serpents. Those pants. Sir. All right. So dragon and serpent occurs together in three verses in the Bible. Isaiah 27.1, which is one of my cross-references that I already found. 
And then Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil. So right there is very clear, just from that one example, by doing two things, treasury scripture knowledge and searching for two words. And I have found that the devil is Leviathan. Does that all make sense? It's very easy to use. So now let's, let's give it a shot on something. All right, so this is not planned, but I want you to give me something. So let's, let's talk about like a topic or a word or something that maybe you are questioning or something like that, that we can just do something fresh. Yeah. Creation. Okay, creation. So what about creation? A word. A word on creation. So if you want to look up the word creation, how many times is creation used in the Bible? It's in six verses. Okay. So, yeah, six verses. Mark 10, Mark 13, Romans 1, 20, Romans 8, 22, 2 Peter 3, 4, Revelation 3, 14. And so every time that creation is used in the Bible, you can see how God uses it here. But, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them fail, male and female. Not fail. Fail and me male. <laughs> male and female. And so what is that talking about? What chapter of your Bible? Genesis 1 and 2. So you can go back and study Genesis 1 and 2 because that's what it's talking about. But if you happen to not know that, what could you do? Ask a friend. No. Treasury of Scripture knowledge. Cross-references. So let's go to Mark 10. And let's go to the Bible view because I want to get to my cross-references. Tap on the verse. Verse 6. Cross-references. TSK. The beginning, Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2, Genesis 5, and Malachi 2. Okay? So right there, it starts to give you those particular verses where that subject matter is discussed. I literally sat down for hours. I have, an, I have a copy where I have a Treasure Scripture Knowledge book. And I remember that as I was going through the Psalms, it took me like a couple years to go through the Psalms. Every time I hit a psalm, I'd be like, okay, what's going on during this time? And so I'd do, okay, verse 1. What's the treasury scripture knowledge on verse 1? Okay, it's broken down into three different parts. And then I would look up every single verse. And you know what it did? Is it helped me to understand the context of what's going on in that particular chapter. But then it started to put different verses in my head. So now I'm like chapters down, and I'm looking up TSK. And before I even look up TSK, I'm like, I bet you that this particular verse is right here. And it started doing that. It started just bringing it into my memory because I looked up all these verses that it started to build almost like a database in my head that when I hit a certain subject, I know it's this particular chapter, it's that particular verse. Or I remember, because this happens to me a lot, I remember there's a verse that has this phrase in it. And so then I'll look up that phrase. And so an easy way to look up phrases is through the word search, but it's similar to any other search you guys would do through you know, Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo. So if you want to look up a certain phrase, like... Um, I don't know. Let's see. Abideth in me. Okay. That was one of our Gen Z ones that you guys totally failed at, except for Jamie. All right. So if I want to do abideth, abide, and I know it's an abideth in me, then I just need to close that in with quotes. And it shows there's only one verse where that phrase is shown exactly as it's written, abideth in me. And then I've got my verse of what I was thinking of. And sometimes it'll be interesting because I'll find different verses where that happens. All right. Give me another one. What's another one? Yeah. Mark of the Beast. Okay. So talking about the Mark of the Beast. Now, now if you were to like, okay, let's start fresh. All right. Let's start off with just Mark of the Beast. And let's say we're just going to look for that phrase. All right. So let's quote it. Mark, not Mac, Mark of the Beast. Quote it. Look at it. Hey, it's there. 
but it also contains other ones. So it says, Mark of the Beast occurs in two verses in the King James. Mark of the Beast also matches the book of Mark. Okay, so here you have two places where the Mark of the Beast is, is located word for word. And so then you can come in here and say, okay, I got Revelation 16.2, and I got Revelation 19.20. So if I wanted to go and study those things out, I'll click on Revelation 16.2. Go to Bible view because I want to hit my cross references. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Okay? So I want to take it, cross reference it. All right, so it breaks it up upon the vial upon the earth, and then there's noisome, and then there's which had the mark. Okay, so as I start to look at this already, you've got upon the earth. And it takes me to Revelation 8, 7. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees were burned up, and all the grass, green grass was burned up. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So upon the earth. Okay. I can see how that's talking about that there. But then it says how this particular mark of the beast upon people, the habit, there is a noisome and grievous sore. And so it takes me to Exodus 9. Why does it take me to Exodus 9? Hmm, I don't know. Let's read it. So Exodus 9, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall, come, and it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took the ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses and sprinkled it up toward heaven. And it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So here you have the mark of the beast associated with the noisome and grievous sore. And it takes you back to Egypt. When there was a plague that got unleashed upon the people where they had boils on their skin. And it was very, very painful. Do you think there's a correlation there? Probably. Because you find out Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist and also the devil. The mark of the beast represents the Antichrist. You're dealing with the nation of Israel that's currently in captivity by the Antichrist. And he wants to kill them just as Pharaoh did. Hmm. It's interesting. Just adds more information to the context of the mark of the beast. Has something to do with Pharaoh in Egypt. Interesting. So it makes a connection there. Isn't that kind of cool? And then he goes through a few more things. Um, Let's see here. And then Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from, all, uh, from thee all the sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, there it is, which thou knowest, upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Deuteronomy 28, 27. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt. Botch, so that boil is also called a botch uh, or a noisome and grievous sore. With the, and with the emrods and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. So this is going to be a boil that's also equated to hemorrhoids, which are emrods when you study that out. And it will be scabbing, and it will be itching, and you can't actually heal it. So you're going to find out more about the mark of the beast through some of these cross-references. And it just keeps going. It just keeps going. You find out in Job chapter 2 that Job had boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. Interesting. I don't know if that has any solid connection, but that's very interesting. That's good information. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe there isn't. But do you see how this can actually benefit you? This is huge. This is major. This starts to unlock some serious stuff. 
If you want to do a particular word study, like you want to do the, a study on the word love, or even how the King James Bible uses the word charity, and it uses the word love. Why does it use charity in one certain parts of the Bible and love in the others? Look up charity. Find out everywhere that charity is used. Look up the word love. Find where love is used. What if you want to study out something like, well, I don't know, the seventh day? Because on the seventh day, God rested. There's some pretty interesting stuff when you look up the seventh day. It's really neat because there's stuff in Leviticus, there's stuff in Exodus, there's stuff that God's doing in the future. It's really, really fascinating. So there's a lot of things. Does anybody else have anything else they want to look up? Yeah. Um, like husband's responsibilities. Because like, like, we have like the virtuous woman. Mm-hmm. That's easy, but like there isn't really like a specific thing for that. Yeah, like a particular chapter like there is yes. for Proverbs 31. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, all right. Okay. I have, to, I have to stop my brain because it starts to move as soon as you say something about that. Okay. So let's take a, a look at the word husband. Okay. And let's search for it. 108 times you're going to be doing some Bible study. All right. But what's interesting, so the first time the word husband is used in the Bible, which we're going to talk about that. It's another rule of Bible study. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Okay, so we know that they're married together. They have that relationship. Genesis 3.16, And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. All right, and then we find out in Genesis 16 verse 3, talks about... Um, Sarai and Abram and how uh, gave to gave her to her husband. So that's when he gave Hagar to him uh, because she could not have a child. And then you have Genesis 29. You have Leah. Um, and so that talks about their relationship together. Um, and then it kind of keeps going. So you can keep going. Yeah. If you put an asterisk after the word husband, it'll give you all forms. Of yes, it will. Yep. So then there's like 152 verses. Yes, absolutely. We'll get to that in a minute. All right, so you can, can keep going. So you can study out every place that the word husband is used. And you'll probably find a few things that are there. And then just say, you know what? I just want to jump to, because I do this sometimes. I want to see how it's used in the New Testament. You can either change your search range from the whole Bible to just the New Testament, or you can just scroll quickly. I just want to go to uh, Matthew. So Jacob, husband of Mary. Joseph, her husband. Uh, a woman shall put away her husband and marry it unto another. Uh, Luke 2 talks about the husband of her, her virginity. Luke 16, um, John 4, again in John 4, talking about the woman at the well. Um, and then Acts 5, verse 9 and verse 10. And then it goes into Romans 7. All right, so in Romans 7, you actually have a husband that shows up four times in one verse. So that's interesting. So you might want to, and then you notice it's also used in Romans 7, 3 as well. So you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 times in two verses. So maybe Romans 7 would be a place that you'd take a look at and start reading through. Um, and then it's used in 1 Corinthians 7 quite a bit. 7, 2, 7, 3, 7, 4, 7, 10, 7, 11, 7, 13, 7, 14, 7, 16, 7, 34. Whew, all right. So the Corinthians definitely is instructed on their relationship together. You find out by studying the context. So 1 Corinthians 7 is another one you could take a look at. Um, and then uh, Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so that's starting to sound a little bit more like responsibilities. So that's where you would land. So anytime that I do premarital counseling and I hit the responsibilities of a husband, I'm always going to go to Ephesians 5. Because if I 
I read 23 through 33, you find out that it's talking about their relationship as Christ in the church. Um, once you start to study it out more and more and more, then you find out that Song of Solomon is actually a really good book as well for husbands to find out, well, how did Solomon treat his bride and studying some of that stuff out too. But so that would be, if I want to find a place, that's what I would do. All right, so Sam brought up a good point. So what if you wanted to see all the places where a certain thing is written? So, for example, husband, it shows up in the very beginning, shows up 108 times. But if you put an asterisk after, then we'll show you a variation, all variations of the word husband. So there's 152. And like you see here in Genesis 9.20, and Noah began to be an husband man, and he planted a vineyard. So someone who is a farmer is also called a husband man or a husbandman. And that is an interesting concept because a husband is not just someone who's in charge of the relationship between him and his wife, but he's also called to be like a farmer and to tend his fields. So you start to see some of the variations that God used, and it can increase your study. So there's a lot. There's a lot that's there. But this literally opens up the door. If there's a certain thing that pops out to you, I started to get into the habit early, early on when I'm reading my Bible, that if I'm reading something through and I'm like, that verse is interesting to me. That phrase is interesting to me. It really stood out to me. Okay, I want to do treasury scripture knowledge. I go to that passage, find TSK, look at those cross-references, and I start to see stuff. Because then through the cross-references, I'm like, that's interesting. And then that leads to this. And then I search that. And then I search that. And you'll find a lot of different stuff. It's really, really cool. So, the whole point of this is that you don't believe what you believe just because you believe it. You believe it because the Bible says it. Well, how do you do that? You have to prove it out. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's not just by reading, but it comes by studying your Bible. And the only way you can really study your Bible is when you compare Scripture with Scripture. You believe in salvation? Great. Give me three verses right now to talk about salvation. Okay. But that's in one chapter, so I want more. Acts one twenty one. Okay. John. Or two twenty one. John three sixteen. Yep. Um, Ephesians two eight nine. Amen. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you got to know where to go, and the only way you know where to go is if you study this stuff out. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with your works because of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, John 3, 16. Heck, all of John chapter 3. Um, Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. I mean, you just need, you'll be able to do it more once you start actually building that up. But if you don't know where to go, then how can you direct anybody? Because it's not about your opinion. It's not about your opinion. You can have tons of opinions. My kids are full of opinions, and they don't know anything about what they're talking about. And I've been talking to them about it quite often. I'm like, okay, first of all, you're arguing with each other, which I really don't like. But secondly, you're speaking authoritatively as if you were the expert on that particular subject matter. Do you realize you know nothing? I mean, but that's what we do sometimes as Christians. Why well, believe it? Well, this is what my pastor said. Who gives a rip? I don't care what your pastor says. What does the Bible say? And give me three passages of Scripture that actually prove that that's true. Because if you can't do that, how do you even know you're saved? Why do we meet together as a church? Because it's Christian tradition? Okay, give me three passages that say they're supposed to meet together as a church. You know what I mean? Okay, study your Bible. Why am I supposed to, Give me three passages of Scripture that tell you that you're supposed to study your Bible. Memorize the Bible. Give me three passages of Scripture that tell you that you should be memorizing your Bible. And if you're willing to actually do that and you believe that, now you've got some faith to deal with. Now you actually have some ammo 
instead of a gun that's full of blanks that threatens no one. <laughs> the enemy is not, is not scared by the fact that you are who you are until you believe what you actually believe. And you can't believe what you believe until you actually know what you believe, according to the book. That's when you start to get dangerous. That's why you, maybe you've heard the phrase before, but the most dangerous person in the world is a common man or a common woman that just believes their Bible. I mean, there were guys going out in the book of Acts that um, they were trying to cast out devils. And they approached the, the demon-possessed person, the devil-possessed person, and they said, By the name of Jesus, whom Paul preacheth, come out. Okay, that's what a lot of Christians are today. They don't know how to use their Bible. And you know what that devil said to him? Uh, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? So... Those are the types of, of Christians that we need to be. Christians that actually the devils know who we are by name because we actually believe what God has told us and we can take the sword out and actually know how to use it. Because we've got two or three passages of Scripture that actually back up the things that we believe. And you should at least be at a point where you may not have it all memorized, but you know where to go. And if you don't, man, you know what you should do? Put notes in your Bible. I mean, I got notes in my Bible all over the stinking place. One, because of JBI. But there are certain things that I've studied out. Like, for example, um, what's one here that I really wanted to hit? All right, so we talked about the responsibilities of, of the husband and of the wife. You know where I put that? Ephesians 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, I wrote out all the responsibilities right here. So I have all the responsibilities of the husband, the seven, and I have the four responsibilities of the wife with explanations and cross-references so that way I can say, okay, what are my responsibilities? I go to this page and I can study it out. And so there's things like that that I put in my Bible. Other things that I put in my Bible too, um, I've got little sections of Scripture where I've done some treasury Scripture knowledge stuff and I have cross-references all over the place. Like you see this here? This is in uh, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, I have this verse here. He that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And then here's my comment because this is what God convicted me of. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You're either on one side or the other. That's a huge problem for us Laodiceans today. And so then I looked up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven verses that support that particular belief. And now it's here that when I'm reading through my Bible again, I'm like, oh, that really stood out to me at one point. I wonder what those verses are. And then I bust them out. I'm like, oh, oh. And then it convicts me again. So there's a lot of things that are very useful if you are willing to put the work in and you start to put some of these cross-references in about things that God's teaching you. And then your Bible becomes almost like a journal that's very personal and very precious to you because God is teaching you so many different things. And I have a Bible that when I first joined the church and I started to dive into some of this stuff, man, it's full of some great things that I learned. And now I look back on it because I have a new one. Uh, I got this one when I started the Bible Institute, and, uh, and so I started fresh. Um, some of them are very similar. Other ones, I went back, I'm like, why did I write that? <laughs> what was I going through at that point in time? That's kind of weird. Whatever. But that's kind of what I do sometimes. Um, and it's really interesting. So you guys need to study the Bible. So here's my challenge to you. With whatever you're reading, if you're reading something, hopefully you're reading something every day. If you're not, start reading. You need to read something every day. But as you're reading through something, maybe there's a verse that stands out to you. You're like, that's an interesting verse. For whatever reason, it just catches your attention or catches your eye. Stop. Write that verse down. Bust out Blue Letter Bible and look at the cross-references. 
and find some of the things that God has in there that are little nuggets that could change your life. All right, any other questions? Okay, all right, sweet. All right, somebody close in prayer and then we're done. Okay, thank you. Dearly Father, Lord, just thank you so much. Um, Lord, I don't know why tonight's attendance was um, smaller than usual, but Lord, I know that the people that are here are the people um, you wanted to be here, and you have a reason behind all of that. And um, Lord, I just pray that um, we all see that and recognize that, and um, just really got something out of tonight. Lord, I just pray for this week that we don't get um, discouraged or bogged down, that we just um, are encouraged and by our fellowship tonight and um, just keep working hard to do your work. And um, Lord, I pray that everybody has safe travels back to um, their house tonight. And Lord, I love you. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen.